Today's readings are Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11, and Mark 1, verses 29 through 39. They can be found on pages 580 and 923 in the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the power of human legs. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. And from Mark chapter 1, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, my contact has decided in the last couple of minutes that it's going to irritate my eye for the rest of the morning. So... If you uh, see me crying right here, it's probably not emotion. It's uh, just intense physical pain. So uh, uh, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, you brought each and every one of us here today from a week, uh, just various weeks for each of us. Some of us filled with struggles, some of us filled with uh, success. Some of us um, just coming from a real place of pain and brokenness and um, some of us having had just an exceptionally good week. And we all come and we lay this before you right now. Um, We we need you here among us. We need you to, to speak to us, to bring a word to our lives, whether we feel that our lives are going well or poorly or right down the middle. Um. I pray that you would be here, that you would let this word be a word to each and every one of us, that you would help us to hear what we need to hear, help us to know you better, 
Help us to know your love. Help us to know that even though we're broken, that you love us more than we can imagine. That you'd help us to love you in response and to love our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Your opinion matters. We want to hear from you. Click here to give us your feedback. Have any of you uh, encountered any of these phrases in the past week? It's okay not to raise your hand. I know I'm asking for feedback too. But I'm just going to assume that you have. Because we are, without a doubt, the most surveyed generation to ever orbit the sun. That sounds like hyperbole. That sounds like exaggeration. But it's not. We are constantly barraged with people asking us for our opinion. Pew and Gallup are constantly sending out surveys, calling people to assess the views of the American public. Every political campaign of any significance needs to be constantly pulling the people, finding out how do they react to what we did this week. How are we doing? Big data firms like Google are constantly tracking your every move. You can't get away from them because they want to deliver you ads tailored to your interests. They want to know your likes and your dislikes. Taco Bell, on the bottom of every receipt, has a link for a survey. They say, visit tellthebell.com and let us know what you're thinking. You can win an iPad. So I'll, you can wait to pull out your phones and go after service to go to Tell the Bell. <laughs> and you think they're in the middle of all this. So these big national corporations, these huge research firms, these political parties, political candidates wanting to know what you think, that you'd feel more valued. You think that they, them wanting to know what you want would make you feel that you really matter to these big corporations, these big political campaigns. Of course, we know deep down that they don't value you or me. I'm sorry if you thought they did. <laughs> but they want to know what you're thinking, what you want, so that they can profit from you. So they can make a little bit more money, sell you a few more things, so they can win their election. And if it's Facebook, so they can sell you to advertisers. But in the spirit of all this, I'm going to go against the grain here, actually with the grain, and conduct my own brief poll. Has anyone here seen the Adjustment Bureau? That's about the response I expected. If you're wondering, it was one that had tra a trailer, a commercial that had Matt Damon and Emily Blunt and guys in fedoras. Uh, so it was not a, a highly seen movie. It's good, though. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, the movie opens, and this is not a spoiler because this is what it opens on. Uh, Matt Damon plays a, an up-and-coming rising star, youngest ever congressman, um, just shooting through the ranks, and he's running for Senate, and he loses his Senate campaign. So he, uh, he goes up to deliver his, his concession speech, and he starts off going strong. He says, you know, in the neighborhood where I grew up, we had a saying, when you get knocked down in a fight, it isn't whether or not you got knocked down, it's what you do when you get back up. And the crowd cheers, they love this, it's a great line. Then he stops and pauses for a few moments and says, goes off script. He says, we didn't have that saying in my neighborhood. He says, that was a line that tested well with the focus group. <laughs> he says, in fact, my whole campaign has been built around the idea that I'm authentic. And he's wearing the tie because he's giving a concession speech. 
He points to his tie and says, in fact, this isn't my tie. This tie was selected out of 52 choices by a group of experts in New Jersey. He says, I had to go with red or blue. If I wore yellow, it looked like I wasn't taking things seriously enough. If I wore silver, it looked like I was trying to be Donald Trump. So it has to be red or blue, and this is the shade they settled on. He says, even his shoes are not really his shoes. He says, the experts have told him if he wears shoes that are too shiny, too new, then people will look at him and they'll be reminded of high-priced attorneys and bankers, and it'll turn away the working man. But if his shoes are too scuffed, if they're too old, then the high-priced attorneys and bankers who he needs to fund his campaign are not going to relate to him. He needs the people to see themselves in him. Now, the Adjustment Bureau is not a work of fact, which is, becomes clear as you see the rest of the movie. But this particular piece of fiction is not that far off. We know that any political candidate running for any sort of national office, at least, any sort of office that has real money boring in, is going to have an image consultant with the sole purpose of helping all the different strata of society, every single person, to see themselves in the candidate. To be able to say, this is a person who seems like they're in my tribe. They probably care about the same things I care about. And we want to criticize this because it's not authentic. It's feels like we're being deceived. And I think that's fine. But at the same time, we have to recognize that it works. But against this backdrop, Jesus acts very differently. He surprises us in today's passage and actually in all the passages in Mark that we've been going through so far. Let's review briefly. Uh, Mark chapter 1 opens with the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. There's a crowd of people there. As he goes in the water and comes back up, it says that heaven is torn apart. It says the spirit descends on him like a dove. It says that a voice from heaven says, You are my son who I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, we always look to, Jesus as, uh, to the baptism of Jesus as the beginning of his ministry, uh, his public ministry. He was about 30-ish at that time. And this is a pretty good way to start your ministry. You've got a big crowd of people. It's easy to get baptized. And you come up. Heaven gets torn open, spirit descends on you like a dove, and a voice from heaven says that you are loved, you are the son of God, that you are, God is well pleased with you. This is a great launching point. And so Jesus capitalizes on this, right? He builds on this. Well, in the words of Mark, immediately, Mark loves the word immediately, not this Mark, Mark in the Bible, uh, but immediately the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted, and he was tempted for 40 days. Okay, that's not exactly what I anticipated the first time I read that. Uh, I thought that he would kind of work with this uh, amazing thing that had just happened, but instead he runs away from everybody and goes into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. Wow, okay. So he's tempted for 40 days, and near the end of those 40 days, John the Baptist is put in prison. John the Baptist, of course, is the guy who just baptized him about 40-ish days ago. Everybody saw him get baptized there. They're publicly associated, and now he's in prison. So this is probably a good time to actually stay in the wilderness. Okay, let's lay low for a little while, see how things play out. You don't really want to be associated with the guy that the government is uh, cracking down on. And so Jesus, of course, reverses our expectations and shows up in town, saying, the time has come. The time has come now. He doesn't say this, but the time has come now. John the Baptist is in prison. That's odd timing. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. 
Repent and believe. He chooses to start his ministry not on that great note of God speaking as he came out of the water, but he starts his ministry when the person he was just most recently publicly associated with has been thrown in prison. And now he's really getting his ministry going. Like any rabbi, any teacher, he needs to have some disciples. He needs people who are going to follow him, to learn from him, to live alongside him and and learn his way of life uh, so they can pass it on to others later on. And so we'd expect that Jesus, of course, starts knocking on the doors of the uh, religious uh, leaders or the well-educated or at least the wealthy and connected people because this is a good way to start building his influential network. But he subverts our expectations again. He goes down to the Sea of Galilee, finds some young fishermen working there, not exactly the most highly educated people of that day, and he calls them. He says, you're going to be my first disciples. Follow me. So they follow him. Despite doing these things that don't look successful, we find him a little while later, this is last week's text, he's speaking in the synagogue for the first time. He's teaching in the synagogue. And the people are amazed by his authority. And a man with a demon tells him, as he's preaching, he says, I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God. Now, a guy with a demon probably is not the best brand ambassador, but you'd still think this is something Jesus could build on. He says, hey, I'm not saying I want to be associated with this guy, but the demon knows that I'm the Holy One of God, so let's work with that. Instead, he silences the demon, says, no more of that, casts him out, and he goes on teaching. And again, it says the people are amazed by his authority. He teaches with great authority. And so you think that after this service, people have just seen something amazing. They saw the, the demon cast out. They, they heard this teaching with authority. And you think that Jesus is going to stick around after synagogue and, you know, shake some hands and meet some of the local officials, you know, maybe start to network a little bit. But then we come to this week's passage, which starts right where that left off. He goes to the house of Simon and Andrew, the two, two of the fishermen that he had recently recruited as disciples. He goes to their home, finds that Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed. He heals her without any fanfare. It just says he heals her. And then they eat together. But at this point, he can't escape his reputation. He can't outrun it anymore. And so as evening comes, all the people of the town of Capernaum start bringing their sick and the demon-possessed to him uh, outside the house to be healed. And finally, Jesus is something we expect. He has compassion on the people, and he spends the whole evening. He goes out, and he is among the people, and he's healing them. He's, uh, you know, he's just giving them each that, that personal attention and that healing. And, uh, of course, the people love this. And as they start to go home that night, you have to think to yourself, a thought has to be occurring in their mind, and it, that Jesus might be the Messiah, and now the, the Messiah word takes a little bit of uh, background to understand what, why they'd be thinking that. That the people of Israel centuries earlier had been promised that one day a savior would come. One day someone would come sent by God who would be a great teacher, who would heal the sick, who would free the oppressed, who would set everything right. And this is a good promise. But the promise had really begun to accumulate some cultural baggage in the 500, 600 years in between. And it makes sense when you consider what Israel had gone through. 500 years before Jesus, half of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. 400 years before Jesus, the other half was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. 300 years before Jesus, all of Israel was conquered by the Greek Empire. 
60 years before Jesus, is conquered by the Roman Empire. And that's still who's in control at the time of Jesus. So Israel has been under a lot of oppression. They have been conquered by army after army. And these are brutal armies. They got a little bit less brutal with each one, but they are pretty brutal all the same. And so a big part of the understanding of Messiah, of Savior, among the Israelites was that the Messiah was going to be somebody who would be a great military general. This is going to be someone who would lead a revolution, sort of like a George Washington, although I'm pretty sure they weren't thinking about George Washington. But someone who would lead this revolution and overthrow their oppressors and you know, probably get quite a bit of vengeance on the Romans for what they had done and, and put Israel back in power, that they would rule their own land and that they would be the most influential nation in the world. So there's this expectation that he'd be this, this revolutionary military leader. And it's interesting because as Christians, Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But the way we understand it, the understanding of the Israelites that had come to take in this whole military general thing had misunderstood what Messiah meant. And we find Jesus continually silencing the demons who say, you are the Holy One, because he knows what the people will think if it gets out too early that he is the Messiah. He knows that they're going to try to project their own ideas of what that needs to be onto him. And when it comes down to it, I think we can relate to the Israelites. I mean, we each have our own idea of what constitutes success. We have our own idea of what it means to achieve. We have our own idea of what it means to... Well, who we're meant to be. And we think that God is on our side. That God is leading us. God is providing for us to move us to have the success that we're hoping for. But our ideas of success don't always align with the ideas of Jesus. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said that if God made us in his image, we have repaid the gesture. Each and every one of us has a tendency to think of God as a bigger, more powerful version of ourselves. We tend to think that God's priorities align with our own, that God thinks the same things we think, that the people we hate are the people that God hates, that the things that we want are the things that God wants for us. We're pretty happy to give our list of priorities, to write out an agenda and, le- and lend it to Jesus. To say, here, you can, you can work with me. But Jesus loves us too much to allow us to set his agenda. He allows you too much to tell him who he needs to be. And this sounds like bad news at first, because we want Jesus to be like us. We want him to endorse everything we do. But it sounds a little bit more like good news when you think about others. What would the world look like? What would your life look like? If God shared the priorities of your coworker, who would do anything to get ahead? What would it look like if God had the same values as your self-absorbed friend? What would it look like if God was right in line with your racist uncle? This would not be a great world. And if you're honest, what would it look like if God shared your hidden biases and your hidden agendas, your hidden envies, your, your hatreds, uh, your misplaced priorities. For instance, consider what you do when life is going well for you. If you're like just about every other person in the world, your tendency as things go more well for you is to actually disconnect more and more from people whose lives aren't going well, from the people who could actually 
benefit from you being in their life. Uh, there's been study after study that's shown this, that people, as they, they move up the income bracket, that they become less generous. Um, one study found that, people, that consistently, people in the bottom fifth of income in any society are going to be more generous than they can afford. They give away more than they have to give. People in the next two-fifths tend to give away what they can afford, and people in the final two-fifths tend to give away less than they can afford. In fact, another study found that, and this is a narrow group, it's people who have above median income, so in the top 50%, but who don't give to charity at all, 58% of them say that they don't have any money to give away. And this is not to knock people who are wealthier. This is an innate human tendency. Anybody, as we become better off, as we become more secure, as we become a, a little bit better, you know, as our health is doing better, we tend to want to protect ourselves from anyone who could possibly infringe, who could threaten our safety and our security. We have this tendency, when, when we have something to lose, we're afraid of losing it. And we want to protect ourselves. We see people as being competitors, as being potential threats. And we have a little bit more of a tendency to want to meet and network with the people who seem like they have something to offer us still. But we don't want to be around the people who seem like they might need something from me. In a way, when we project this sort of thing onto God, when we let this hidden bias become part of our prayer, become part of what we expect God to do, the priorities we expect God to have, we're basically asking God to be our watchdog. God, please protect the possessions and the wealth and the health of good, decent people like me. But Jesus doesn't work with that. Jesus goes against that grain. When, he, when things are going well for him, repeatedly, every time things are going well for him in this chapter, we see him doing something unexpected. We see him recognizing the threat of success, the way that it could, uh, it could pervert his priorities, the way uh, it could keep him away from people who he needs to interact with, people who he needs to meet. He takes his privilege. Instead of protecting his privilege, he extends it to those around him. He seeks out the people who are being overlooked, the people who are, are not sharing in the wealth, and he extends some of that to them. For instance, we... We see this crowd after the synagogue. That, you know, they're, they're thrilled with what they've heard from him. And he has this chance to be there with them, and they're happy. He can be happy with them. It could be just a happy back-and-forth sort of conversation. And so Jesus goes to the house of Simon, and, and there is the mother-in-law who couldn't make it to synagogue that day because she's too sick in bed. And that's the person that Jesus went to find. Now, obviously, Jesus has compassion when the people are brought to him, the people are sick, because these are people that he has mercy on. But even in this passage, we find that after this incredible day, where Jesus taught with authority, cast out demons, healed all the sick in the town, and the next morning, the people are looking for him. They want him to stay with them. And he says that he must go on to the next town. The next town still has need. The next town hasn't yet heard that the kingdom of God is present. He's not just going to stay and enjoy the success. He's going to go to the places where success hasn't reached. People, the fans of Jesus want Jesus to be like a factory, just cranking out more and more of the things we want, more and more of the trinkets, the things that make us feel like we have enough, the things that make us feel good. And we want it to be a security system that keeps the right people safely in and the wrong people safely out. And Jesus 
if we're going to make any kind of mechanical metaphor, is like a centrifuge. His life and the lives of his followers are thrown out toward the margins, toward the people that are being overlooked, the people being abused, the people who don't have enough, the people who are in need. But Jesus, the this, this story doesn't just jump from Jesus having that amazing night healing everybody to Jesus moving on to the next town the next day. Uh, there's this intervening part where it says that Jesus went out into the wilderness the next morning to pray. Because he went to a, a lonely place to pray by himself. And I think this is important. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a great high priest who can empathize with us because he's been tempted and tested in every way that we are. That he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to have our misplaced priorities in the back of his mind. So Jesus felt the allure of this success. Jesus, I'm sure, had the part of him thinking, you know, this is a pretty good launching point. This whole town loves me. I could build a network here. I could work with the, the most connected people here, the influential people here who have connections in other cities. We'd spread out and, you know, eventually this would all kind of trickle down to the people on the margins. But, you know, this would be a very effective, efficient way of doing things. But instead he goes into prayer and lays his priorities out. He, I'm sure he asks, you know, is this what I should do? Should I do the easy thing here? And we're, we're not told exactly the words that Jesus prays this morning. But we are told in Mark, several chapters later, which is about three years later, in uh, the story's time, the, about another prayer of Jesus, when Jesus was in a sort of similar situation. Uh, it's the night that he's about to be betrayed, He's aware of the fact that the next day he's going to be executed in an excruciating way. In fact, in a way that gives birth to the word excruciating, crucifixion. And he, he feels that impending dread. He feels the, the weight of what's coming. And he prays in a garden. He says, you know, if there's any way for this cup to be taken from me, he says, is there any other way for this to be accomplished? If there's an easier path than the one I have to go on right now, please give that to me. Because understandably and rightfully, he doesn't want to go through the suffering. And then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And I imagine this is the same sort of prayer that's happening this morning with Jesus. That he says, you know, I'd like to work with this group that's already thrilled about me. They're happy with me. This would be, seem to be an efficient way to do things. But not my will, but your will. And it turns out, that the right will moves him away from what seems like the easy path, what seems like just the obvious path. It's interesting because in the book of Mark, we don't find that the temptation count is, is very brief. We basically already said it. He's into the desert for 40 days, and he's tempted. Uh, the other Gospels, like Luke and Matthew, they tell us a little bit more. They, say, they list three specific temptations he suffered. One was the, the temptation to take the easy way. He was fasting, right, for a long time. 40 days and 40 nights is a long time. And he's fasting, and he has this temptation, like, why not just, you know, make yourself some bread and eat it? You can do that. And he turns that down. That would have been the easy way out of his fast. And then he's tempted, hey, why don't you throw yourself down from the temple mount in front of this huge crowd of people worshiping, and you know that the angels will catch you and deliver you safe to the ground, and people will be amazed by this spectacle. You'll impress everyone, and you'll have, a, you'll have these followers. 
And Jesus turns down the, the temptation to be a spectacle. And then he's offered one final temptation. Why don't you trade in your priorities? Instead of the priorities of God, why don't you trade those in and be promised a kingdom? You'll get the whole world. It'll be yours. And Jesus turns that one down too. I think that those same three things are in Mark. They're happening here. That Jesus is tempted by the easy way. He's tempted to, you know, to work with this. You know, his, his miracles so far have not been for the sake of being a spectacle. They've been out of compassion. Now he's tempted to use the spectacle of them. He's tempted to trade his priorities and get an easy kingdom, the kind of kingdom that we expect, the kind of kingdom that takes swords to those in power and then replaces the people in power with ourselves. The, the one that says, like, I could do it better, ignoring the fact that we would be corrupted too when we got in power. Jesus prays, though. And he, he finds that he needs to do something else. He needs to do the unexpected thing. And he models for us what it looks like to lay our priorities before God. But more than that, he's not just modeling. He's inviting and freeing us and empowering us to actually follow this example, to live a life freed from our own priorities. That sounds a little bit odd, but I, so I think we need to make a note that Jesus is not offering to swap out one system of like 10 steps of success for a new system of 10 steps of success. He's not saying you have it wrong about how to achieve wealth or fame or how to get the uh, position in the academic department that you want or the way to find that manager's chair. Uh, he's not saying this is the way you find a mate. This is not the way that you get that house that you wanted and get the right kitchen remodel. He says, he puts that aside. He doesn't give us a new system to achieve those things. He gives us new goals. And he gets away with, uh, he gets rid of the system altogether. We have this tendency to, to have this fear. We, we think that we live in a world of scarcity. We think that there's only so much to go around. We think that the acceptance and love are things that you have to earn. That these are things that we need to achieve. And so we strive for these things. We want to be admired. We want to have enough stuff to make sure that we're safe. And Jesus says, he, he comes to us and says, you're already loved. He, says, he makes the first move. He says, he's already done all the work. He loves us unconditionally. It came up in a hymn today. It came up in a, some, the text that Jesus loved us while we are sinners. That we are already accepted by God through him. He says, you have this radical acceptance to begin with. He says, your whole life is striving, whether or not you realize it, toward being accepted by others, to being loved, to feeling like you fit in. And he says, that's not your finish line anymore. That's your starting point. He says, I already love you. He says, you're welcome with me. I know that you're flawed, but you're welcome here. He says, and now that you have that, you don't have to have these 10 steps to success. You don't have to have this striving to make sure that your GPA is perfect. You don't have to have this desire to to never make a misstep. You don't have to have this fear that if you make a mistake, if you do something wrong, that that's the end of the line, that you're done. You don't have to have these perfectionistic uh, feelings. You don't have to demand that your children be perfect so they don't embarrass you in public. Instead, he says, you're already loved. You're loved more than you can imagine. He says, life is a gift from this point on. He says, and you don't need to be afraid of your neighbors. Your neighbors can't threaten this. He says, in fact, he invites us into his own mission. 
you know, someone asked him, what are the two most important commandments? And he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And these aren't new rules for us. These aren't a new set of laws that we have to obey. These are what Jesus calls the abundant life. These are a way to live as we're meant to live, with the grain of the universe. These are the way that, that because we are loved, we have a free love to give. That our neighbors are not frightening, our neighbors are not people that we need to worry about, people who are a threat to us, people who aren't like us, aren't outside our tribe. They are our neighbors. They are people that we're called to love like Jesus loved. Jesus moved toward the margins, and he moves us toward the margins. Augustine, ancient theologian, in one of his most famous sermons, said, love God and do as you please. Uh, people have taken it the wrong way sometimes, as you can imagine. But what he meant by it was, when you love God, when you know that God loves you, and in gratitude, you love God in response, he says, you can do as you please. Like, he says, your desires are going to start being transformed into the things that God loves. He says, you don't have to worry about a system of rules. You don't have to worry that God has a checklist of, you know, like, well, you smoked that cigarette. No, God is saying to you that, you can, that he loves you. And in response, you're just invited to love, that you're freed from the striving and the worries about failure because you're already accepted. Let's pray. Jesus, you suffered every temptation and every trial that we will ever go through. You know exactly what it is to have our misplaced priorities. You know what it is to understandably desire security, to desire that we protect ourselves. But you didn't insist on protecting yourself. You submitted yourself to living like us and to dying a terrible death on our place. Because you love us. I pray that for each and every one of us, wherever we are at in our journey, wherever we're at and what we think about you, that you would help reveal to us in that little way that the fact that you have set us free, you extend to us an invitation to love you. We pray that you would free us because we are trapped. We are chained to our priorities. We're not good at getting away from them. And even if we think of it as trying to be good at getting away from them, we're just putting in a new system of rules. We're so trapped in our way of thinking like that. And I just pray, Lord, that you would come and help us to see that we're invited to something else. We're invited to a way of abundance and freedom and love. In your name we pray.